Vanna Marie Rosich was born February 18, 1957, to Joan Marie and Miguel Angel Rosich in Conway, South Carolina. From a very young age, like so many, she dreamed of being a star. She attended North Myrtle Beach High School, where she was a cheerleader, and after graduation, she moved to Atlanta, where she went to the Atlanta School of Fashion and did some modeling. In 1978, she even competed in the Miss Georgia pageant. If she wanted to be a star, though, she had to think bigger than Atlanta. So the following year, she moved to Los Angeles with a big dream and $1,000 to her name. In 1980, she made her acting debut as Mickey, a stripper who fell in love with a stunt pilot in the film Gypsy Angels. I doubt it was her dream role. The film didn't even make it to the theaters. That same year, she made an appearance as a contestant on the game show The Price is Right, but she didn't even make it off contestants row. In 1981, a close friend of her mother's, Christopher George, best known for his role in Rat Patrol, got her a small part in his thriller Graduation Day. She was on screen, but if it weren't for what happened next, those roles would have long since been forgotten. It was in 1982 that she got her big break. Her friend, Janet Jones, who later married hockey superstar Wayne Gretzky, invited her to a taping of the show Dance Fever, on which she was a backup dancer. Dance Fever was a Merv Griffin show, and Janet introduced her to Merv's assistant. He told her they were holding auditions for another of Merv's shows. This was a game show which began in 1975 called Shopper's Bazaar, starring Chuck Woolery and Susan Stafford. Chuck Woolery had left the show, and they had hired a local L.A. weatherman to replace him. Then Susan Stafford quit, and they were, at that time, trying to find her replacement. Vanna auditioned for the part, and Merv loved her and hired her, and I'm sure he's glad he did, because that role made her a superstar. The rest is history. The show has produced over 6,700 episodes to date and has become the most successful game show in U.S. television history. She still loves to act and has since had cameo roles on L.A. Law, 227, Simon and Simon, The King of Queens, Full House, and Married with Children. She became a star after all, and in 2006, she got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The star doesn't say Vanna Rosich, though. You see, her parents split up when she was an infant. Her mother remarried, and she took the last name of her stepfather and became, as I'm sure you've guessed by now, Vanna White. The local weatherman was, of course, Pat Sajak, and Shopper's Bazaar had been renamed Wheel of Fortune. And with the success of that show, Vanna White has become one of the most widely known names to have come out of her home state of South Carolina. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every town. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your host, Mike Harding, welcoming you to another episode 
of American Anthology. Today, I'm coming to you from the great state of South Carolina. Over the last few weeks, I've made my way all the way up the coast, and then turned inland, across the north, to the capital city of Columbia. It's springtime in the south. The flowers are in bloom, and the days are getting longer. I've enjoyed long strolls on beautiful beaches and in quaint and quiet towns, under ancient oak trees draped in Spanish moss. I've met wonderful people who are fiercely loyal to and proud of their home state. The food and friendliness of the Low Country is legendary, and rightly so. And of course, I've heard some great music. My favorite venue so far was fabulous Allendaw Green, where they host a weekly barn jam, complete with bonfires and barbecue. It was there that I recorded the music for this episode, performed by the incredibly talented Charleston-based band Saluda Shoals. If you like what you hear, and I know you will, you can find their album Fight Dirty on iTunes. To find out more, visit their website, salutashoalsband.com. To find out more about me or my journey around the country, now in my third state, check out my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Also, find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet, and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. As springtime pushes north, I hope you all get the chance to do some travel of your own. This podcast makes for great listening while you do. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy these stories from the Palmetto State. I don't need to be reminded Of what I know you ain't forgotten I was pulling out the drive Started to shout I couldn't South Carolina was the site of the first European colony in what is now the United States. On October 8th, 1526, 500 Spanish settlers established San Miguel de Guadalupe. It was abandoned eight months later. In 1562, French Huguenots came to the region, and two years later built Fort Caroline, named after the King of France, Charles IX. It wasn't until 1629 that the English came to the area, when Charles I established the province of Carolina, and then Charles II awarded it to his lord's proprietors, a story we heard several episodes ago. In the beginning, deer hides were the primary industry, which eventually gave way to the far more valuable crops of rice and indigo. At one point, Georgetown, South Carolina, was one of the largest rice exporting ports in the world. This led to South Carolina being the wealthiest state in the South, one of the reasons the British fought so hard to keep it during the Revolution. We'll hear more of this story later in the podcast. Rice was also heavily dependent on slave labor, which left antebellum coastal South Carolina's population 90% slave and 10% free. After the invention of the cotton gin, a massive cotton industry began in the upcountry, 
South Carolina became the largest producer of cotton in the United States until 1820. This was another heavily slave-dependent and hugely profitable industry. It was because of this combination of population dynamics and a powerful economy which led to South Carolina being the first state to secede from the United States in the lead-up to the Civil War. It is from these wars that the flag of South Carolina has emerged. At first glance, it looks like a palm tree under a crescent moon, but the history goes much deeper. In 1775, William Moultrie, defending Charleston Harbor at Fort Sullivan, was asked to design a flag under which his men could fight during the Revolution. He chose blue, the color of their uniforms, the color produced from the indigo, which was such an important part of their early economy. Moultrie then looked at his soldiers' hats, which had a silver crescent on the front. If you look closely, you'll see it is this crescent on the flag, not a moon at all. While used in some early versions of the flag, the palmetto tree was officially added after South Carolina seceded from the Union. It also references Moultrie and his defense of Sullivan's Island during the Revolution. Unable to construct a proper fort, they surrounded themselves with sand walls covered in native palmetto trees. This turned out well for Moultrie, as the spongy trunks of the palmettos were able to absorb the cannon fire of the British, and despite taking heavy fire, Moultrie and his troops were able to maintain their position. The palmetto and crescent are proud reminders of the state's military past. The state motto of South Carolina is another of my favorites. Dum Spiro Sparrow. While I breathe, I hope. When we think of the American Revolution, we don't often think of South Carolina, but we should. More than 200 battles took place in South Carolina, more than in any other state, producing over 20% of the total battle casualties from the war. Through the veil of history, we like to think of freedom-loving American patriots fighting against a tyrannical tax-loving king and his red-coated henchmen. The reality on the ground was different. The reality was a mostly native-born population squaring off against itself. Some were loyal to the British flag they had grown up under, while others were convinced that a new country could fend for itself, like they were used to doing in their own lives. This was often neighbor fighting neighbor, and young men running off to fight for their chosen cause, the ramifications of which they couldn't possibly understand. It was brutal, it was harsh, and it was ugly, as all wars fought on the ground in this country have been. In the midst of this chaos, one man emerged who personified the brutal nature of the war. He fought harder, dirtier, and longer than anyone thought possible. In so doing, he helped keep South Carolina, and perhaps the new emerging nation, from faltering. He kept hope alive. His name was Francis Marion. Francis Marion was born sometime around 1732 on his family's plantation in what is now Berkeley County, South Carolina, 
The youngest of six children, he was born with malformed legs and bad ankles. When he was 15, he went to work on a boat. On his first voyage, legend says the boat was rammed by a whale and sunk. The crew spent a week at sea on a lifeboat before drifting back to shore. When Marion stepped out onto dry land, he decided the sea was not for him. He returned to work on his family plantation, growing rice and indigo. When he was 25, Marion went west to fight in the French and Indian War. It was here that he got his first taste of the ugliness of combat. Fighting under British officers and against the Cherokee Indians, Marion kept his head down and his eyes open and learned lessons about war that he would carry with him always. When he returned to the Low Country, Marion went back to his family plantation and bought his own plot, Pond Bluff, in 1773. In 1775, he served in South Carolina's Provincial Congress, which voted to raise three regiments of regular army to prepare for the inevitable fight to come. Marion was commissioned a captain and helped William Moultrie first build and then defend the Palmetto Fort in Charleston. In 1776, Marion was made a lieutenant colonel and spent the next three years dealing with the diverse personalities of those in his charge, who were generally young and eager and bored. It was around this time that a devastating defeat at Saratoga in New York prompted the British to change their focus to the south. In December 1778, British troops captured Savannah. They moved north, but met resistance and returned to Savannah to regroup. In 1779, the rebels took the offensive, and Marion took part in the Siege of Savannah, an unsuccessful attempt to wrest control of the southern port back from the British. Successfully defending Savannah, and with reinforcements coming from New York, the British once again set their sights on Charleston. In March of 1780, Marion injured his ankle and took a leave of absence to tend to it. Because of this injury, he wasn't in Charleston when the invasion came. It came fast and hard, and on May 10, 1780, Charleston fell. The British quickly moved outward from the city, taking control of the surrounding countryside. In August, they had another big victory at Camden, and all hope for the rebel cause of independence from Britain seemed lost in South Carolina. It's often in these hopeless situations that heroes are born, and so it was with Francis Marion. Still hobbling on a bad ankle, he took to horseback and rallied a ragtag crew together to form a pro-independence militia. Marion's men, as they were sometimes called, were probably quite a sight to behold. Some were white, some black, some Native American, some were slaves, some were free, most were poor. But in a short period of time, all grew fiercely loyal to Marion and the cause of independence. These men were the very definition of an irregular unit. They had no uniforms, little ammunition, and had to forage for their own food and supplies. Over the next several months, Marion's men set out with a mission to harass and terrorize the British and Loyalist regulars. 
Using tactics he had seen the Cherokee use years earlier, Marion would strike at night and then disappear into the swamps of the Low Country. They used their surroundings to their advantage and would ambush the British when and where it was least expected. While they used these guerrilla tactics against the British, they had a different approach to the farmers living in the countryside. With them, Marion tried to rally them to the cause of independence and keep the rebel fires burning. Soon, these folks were helping arm and supply Marion and aided in gathering intelligence against the British. While Marion wasn't inflicting massive casualties, psychologically, his campaign was taking its toll. The British never knew when or where he would strike. His small, mounted brigade could cover large distances and quickly. Meanwhile, they sensed resistance growing from the civilian population. Marion's men were like a mosquito, buzzing in their ear when they tried to sleep. After several months of this, Colonel Bannister Tarleton was sent on a mission to capture or kill Francis Marion. After pursuing him for seven hours through 26 miles of swamp, Tarleton gave up. Tarleton is often quoted as saying, as for this damned old fox, the devil himself couldn't catch him. It was from this episode that Francis Marion got his nickname. Whether it was used at the time or not until later, history remembers him as the Swamp Fox. Over the next several months, Marion and his militia continued their ambushes and night raids. They also took part in several more conventional battles, helping recapture two forts and fighting in the Battle of Utah Springs, the last major battle of the Revolution fought in South Carolina. The British moved north and east, and on October 19, 1781, surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown. After the war, Francis Marion was elected to the State Assembly. He served several terms in the South Carolina State Senate and acted as the commander of Fort Johnson until 1794 the year before he died. As I've traveled around South Carolina, I've seen many, many parks, statues, and memorials to Francis Marion, including Francis Marion National Forest, a huge tract of the swamps they used to maneuver in. As I hiked the Swamp Fox Passage through this forest, I tried to picture in my head what it must have been like. The contributions of Francis Marion are also memorialized at Marion Park, on Capitol Hill, in my hometown of Washington, D.C., and in one of my favorite paintings, a painting by South Carolina artist John Blake White, which hangs prominently in the United States Capitol. Francis Marion, the elusive Swamp Fox, died at home at his beloved Pond Bluff on February 27, 1795. He is buried in a family cemetery down a dirt road in Berkeley County. His tombstone reads, History will record his worth, and rising generations embalm his memory as one of the most distinguished patriots and heroes of the American Revolution, which elevated his native country to honor and independence, and secured her the blessings of liberty and peace. He lived without fear, and died without reproach. Started out to spend, ate a sitting cafe, 
Hey, how's the night? What's so late? Yeah, I'm doing the same. And then we got a little deeper. When the Mexican-American War ended with the 1848 signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the United States needed to find ways to reach its newly acquired territories on the West Coast. The Transcontinental Railroad was still 20 years in the future, and other means of traveling overland were difficult and dangerous. Sea travel was by far the best method, but before the Panama Canal was built, this required a difficult journey all the way around the southern tip of South America. The solution they came up with wasn't ideal, but it worked. The U.S. government subsidized private companies to run mail, people, and supplies between New York and Panama and Panama and Oregon, with various means of getting them across the isthmus. In 1848, the U.S. Mail Steamship Company was formed to run the Atlantic side of this operation. Later that year, the discovery of gold in California turned this route into a booming business. In 1852, the company built two large ships to make this run, the SS Illinois and the SS George Law. It is the latter that we are interested in for this story. The SS George Law was built in New York and named for one of the company's founders. This 280-foot, three-mast, side-wheel steamship was capable of making the run in about 19 days. It made its maiden voyage on October 20, 1853, and made 42 round-trip voyages between New York City and what was then Aspinwall in Panama. It has been estimated that during this time, these boats carried one-third of the gold taken from California's gold fields bound for New York. In 1857, the SS George Law was dry-docked and overhauled, and since George Law had sold his interests in the company, it was renamed the SS Central America. Have you ever heard that it's bad luck to rename a boat? In this case, that superstition certainly holds up. The newly christened SS Central America made its 43rd run with no problems. It was captained by William Lewis Herndon, veteran of the Mexican-American War and famed Amazon explorer, the city of Herndon, Virginia, a suburb of my hometown of Washington, D.C., is named for him. His daughter, Ellen, in 1859, married future United States President Chester A. Arthur. This 43rd run would be the last successful run for the Central America and for Herndon. On its 44th run, the SS Central America made it to Aspinwall in Panama without incident, it offloaded and onloaded its cargo, and on September 3, 1857, it set sail for New York. On board were 477 passengers, 101 crew, and roughly $2 million worth of California gold. Those are $1857, by the way. The Central America docked in Havana on September 7th for the night, and left the next day on calm seas under clear skies. They made good time, traveling almost 500 miles over the next two days. But that was all about to change. At 5.30 a.m. on September 9th, the ship's second officer noted that the winds had picked up. Clouds started to gather and darken. 
Perhaps a storm was moving in. By the morning of the 10th, the wind had intensified, and the waves were rocking the big ship. Captain Herndon kept the bow facing into the storm, and made his rounds to try and calm the fears of his passengers. The storm raged all day, but the ship and her crew held on. On September 11th, winds had reached hurricane force, and the sails of the Central America were in tatters. At 9 a.m., a leak sprung between the side of the ship and the paddle wheel, and the Central America started taking on water. The bilge pumps were on high, but they couldn't keep up. The water overflowed the coal bin, and the crew started scavenging for wood to keep the boiler and the pumps going. At noon, the water reached the boiler, and it slowed to a halt. With it, the bilge pumps quit, and an eerie silence descended on the ship. Not giving up, Captain Herndon called on every able-bodied man to grab a bucket and line up. The bucket brigade labored through the day, while the women brought food and water. The ship started listing to starboard, and they could no longer control it enough to turn it into the storm. When the eye of the storm came, a desperate attempt was made to relight the boiler, but it was hopeless. Soon the storm closed in again. The men continued to bail because what other choice did they have? By this point, it was clear the ship was sinking. But if they could just hold on and ride out the storm, their chances of survival would be much higher. On the morning of September 12th, the storm started to abate. There was at least some hope in this. Then, at 1 p.m., the brig Marine was spotted on the horizon. Captain Herndon began lowering the lifeboats. They went too quickly with the first one, and it smashed. They successfully launched the other three. Women and children were ordered aboard and moved towards the Marine. Over the next few hours, they successfully got around 100 passengers transferred to the Marine before it drifted out of reach. At 6.30 p.m., the ship El Dorado came into view and attempted to help, but it had no lifeboats and the Central America's lifeboats were gone. The people on both boats watched each other helplessly as they drifted further apart until they were out of each other's sight. At 8 p.m. on September 12th, the SS Central America sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, 7,200 feet down and about 160 miles off the coast of South Carolina. The next day, a Norwegian ship, the Ellen, plucked 50 survivors from the water. And nine long days later, the brig Mary found three more floating on a life raft. Captain Herndon and 425 others perished, making this the biggest peacetime maritime disaster in the history of the United States to that point. 7,200 feet is almost a mile and a half down. The SS Central America was simply gone. 131 years later to the day that the engine went quiet on the Central America, engineer, researcher, and founder of the Columbus American Discovery Group, Tommy Thompson, lowered a homemade, remote-controlled robot called Nemo into the ocean. After years of research and planning, Thompson believed he had found what he was looking for off the coast of South Carolina. 
When Nemo transmitted back images of the largely intact paddle wheel back to Thompson, I hope he shouted, Eureka! Sometime later, Thompson pulled his boat in at the dock in Norfolk, Virginia. On board, he had an estimated $150 million worth of gold. Life magazine called it the greatest treasure ever found. Soon thereafter, 39 insurance companies sued Thompson, stating that since they had settled those claims in the 1850s, the treasure was theirs. The courts disagreed and finally settled the matter by awarding over 90% of the treasure back to Thompson. Thompson's troubles did not end there, though. In 2005, his investors sued him, and in 2006, his crew did as well. Both claimed that they hadn't gotten what they were owed. In 2012, as the hearings drug out, Thompson refused to appear in court. He went on the run for three years before U.S. Marshals tracked him down. Refusing to give up the location of the gold, Thompson went to jail. As of this recording, he's still there. I've often said that gold does funny things to people, and this is one such case. Rather than loosen his fist a little bit and live the rest of his life as a rich man, he'd rather keep it all and rot in jail. In 2014, Odyssey Marine Exploration returned to the Central America and salvaged more of its treasure and some amazing historic artifacts as well. A huge portion of the Central America's gold, though, sits where it has for over 150 years, 7,200 feet below the ocean's waves. The story of the Central America is an amazing one from start to finish. It had an amazing life and has had an amazing afterlife. Stories of sunken treasure and shipwrecks have always fascinated me, and I'm sure they have many of you as well. I can't help but wonder what else is out there as I stand on a deserted beach and gaze out at the sea. Lately I'm feeling a change in the weather You're my ride and attack on a bed Now I look in your eyes, don't look the same I was always the first thing on your mind Now you're living the nightlife Robert Smalls was born a slave on April 5th, 1839 in a small cabin behind his master's house in Beaufort, South Carolina. His mother's name was Lydia Polite, and in a situation more common than people like to admit, his father was more than likely their master, Henry McKee. In 1851, when Robert was 12, McKee sent him to Charleston, where he was hired out as a laborer. Smalls started out waiting tables in a hotel then worked as a lamplighter, but he was always fascinated with the boats that were constantly coming and going in busy Charleston Harbor. He found work as a dock worker, then as a rigger, then a sailmaker, and finally as a wheelman, piloting boats into and out of the harbor. In 1856, Robert Smalls married an enslaved hotel maid named Hannah Jones, they were given permission to live together and soon had two children, Elizabeth and Robert Jr. South Carolina seceded from the United States in December of 1860, 
Four months later, the first shots of the Civil War were fired as Confederate cannons opened up on U.S.-held Fort Sumter there in Charleston Harbor. The bombardment lasted 34 hours until Fort Sumter was surrendered. Robert Smalls likely witnessed this battle firsthand, either from shore or from the water. In the fall of that year, Smalls was assigned to pilot the 300-ton, 147-foot sidewheel steamer CSS Planter. The planter was placed in service as a military transport. Smalls piloted the planter throughout the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida, delivering dispatches, troops and supplies, and also laying mines. Smalls was an excellent pilot and earned the respect of the crew, both the white officers and black sailors. On May 12, 1862, the planter traveled to Coles Island, where it picked up four guns to be transported back to Charleston. When it returned to Charleston, they picked up 20 cords of firewood and 200 rounds of ammunition. Dark fell, and the white officers disembarked to spend the night in Charleston, as apparently was their custom, and left Smalls in charge. It wasn't his last night as a pilot, but it was his last night as a slave. I don't know if Robert Smalls got any sleep that night, but I doubt it. I do know that at 3 a.m. on May 13th, he was wide awake, perhaps more so than he had ever been in his life. He assembled his slave crew, raised the Confederate flag, donned the captain's uniform and old straw hat, and pushed off from the dock. They stopped at a different dock, where Smalls' wife, Hannah, their children, and the families of the other crew members lay in wait. The families were hurried on board, and the CSS planter set off into the night. Smalls sailed the planter past five Confederate forts that night, carefully but confidently giving the secret signals to the guards. He had learned them well. At about 4.30 a.m., he passed Fort Sumter. He passed calmly and quietly out of range of their guns and then made a beeline straight towards the Union blockade. As the planter aimed towards the USS onward, the crew lowered the Confederate flag and raised in its place a white bedsheet from the hotel Hannah had worked at. When Captain John Nichols of the Onward saw the flag of surrender, he ordered his men to stand down. When he boarded the planter and saw the faces of those on board, he understood exactly what had happened. Smalls turned over the command of the boat, but before he did, he made one small request. He asked for a Union flag. By dawn's early light, as they raised the third flag flown over the planter that morning, they knew that for the first time in any of their lives, they were free. Robert Smalls, the man who had delivered them to freedom, was just 23 years old. Smalls was brought to nearby Port Royal, where he gave a detailed briefing of the defenses of Charleston Harbor to the commander of the blockading fleet, Admiral Samuel DuPont. As a side note, Admiral DuPont is the namesake of DuPont Circle in my hometown of Washington, D.C. Smalls also turned over the planter's codebook, and a map of the mines in the harbor. When DuPont learned that just the day before, 
The planter had removed the guns from Coles Island. The Navy moved in, took it without a fight, and held it for the duration of the war. It wasn't long before the news of the defection of the planter hit the press in both the North and the South. In the South, people were appalled. The white officers of the planter were court-martialed, and a $4,000 reward was put out for Smalls' capture. In the North, he was considered a hero. Congress granted Smalls and his crew a sizable reward for capturing the planter. Smalls was sent to Washington to meet with President Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and try and help persuade them to allow black men to fight for the Union. As a result, Stanton signed an order to assemble 5,000 escaped slaves at Port Royal as the first South Carolina Volunteers, later redesignated the 33rd United States Colored Infantry Regiment. As another side note, abolitionist Harriet Tubman would serve as a cook, nurse, scout, and spy with the 1st South Carolina. Smalls went back to work piloting the planter. One of his main objectives was to remove many of the mines he had helped plant in Charleston Harbor. On December 1st, 1863, Smalls was piloting the planter under Captain James Nickerson at Secessionville when Confederate batteries opened fire on them. Fearing for his life, Nickerson fled the wheelhouse. Smalls assumed command and piloted the boat to safety. For this, he was promoted to captain of the planter. In 1864, Smalls served as an unofficial delegate to the Republican Convention in Baltimore. In 1865, he was back on the planter, supporting General Sherman's march to the sea. Later that year, he returned to Charleston Harbor to watch the Stars and Stripes finally raised once again over Fort Sumter. Immediately following the war, Smalls continued piloting the planter, bringing food, clothes, and supplies to freed slaves in the South. When his services were no longer needed, Smalls returned to Beaufort. In what must have been a pretty sweet moment, he used the reward money from delivering the planter to purchase his former master's house at 511 Prince Street. He also purchased the Beaumont Building to be used as a school to educate black children. He made several business investments and continuously worked to improve his own education. In 1868, he served as a delegate to the South Carolina Constitutional Convention and pushed to make education free and compulsory for all children. Smalls was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives in 1868. He moved to the State Senate in 1870 to fill a vacant seat and kept that seat in the next election in 1872. In 1874, Robert Smalls was elected to the United States House of Representatives, where he served four terms. In 1890, President Benjamin Harrison appointed Smalls as the collector of the Port of Beaufort, a position he held for most of the next 23 years. He was also promoted to the rank of Major General in the South Carolina State Militia. Robert Smalls, who started life as a slave, worked to become a boat pilot, made a daring dash to freedom, served in the Union Army, the South Carolina Legislature, and the United States Congress 
died February 23, 1915, at the age of 75 in his beloved Buford. There are many memorials around the state and around the country dedicated to Robert Smalls. Perhaps most significantly, though, in 2007, the United States Army commissioned the logistics support vessel Major General Robert Smalls. It was the first Army vessel named for an African American, which I think is very fitting. When he had met with Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, Lincoln asked Smalls what made him risk everything, his life, the lives of his crew, and his family, to which Robert Smalls responded with only one word, freedom. When Mammy Johnson was growing up in Ridgeway, South Carolina in the late 1930s and early 1940s, she loved baseball. I mean, loved baseball. But in her neighborhood, baseballs were hard to come by. So they made their own, taking some rocks and wrapping them up in twine and then wrapping that in tape. You basically had a baseball. Mammy not only loved baseball, she loved throwing baseballs. I threw anything that had to be thrown, she later remembered. I was knocking birds off the fence with rocks, honey. The adults in her life told her she should play softball with the other girls, but she wasn't buying that at all. Softball was all right, but only baseball was baseball. When Mammy and her family moved to my hometown of Washington, D.C., she started pitching for her church league, her all-male church league. In 1952, when Mammy was 17, she thought her prayers had been answered. She went just south of D.C. to Alexandria, Virginia, to try out for the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. You know, the one from the movie A League of Their Own? But they wouldn't even let Mammy try out. You see, Mammy was black, and while Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier in Major League Baseball five years earlier, there would be no black women playing in this league. I can only imagine how this made Mammy feel. It didn't change her love of the game, though, and she went right on back to pitching for her church team at St. Cyprian's Catholic Church. The funny thing about life, though, is that until it's over, we never really know what were good breaks and what were bad breaks. Looking back years later, Mammy often said getting rejected that day in 1952 was the best thing that ever happened to her. The following year, she was pitching a game in her church league and was absolutely dominating the other team. There was a scout at that game, and he invited Mammy to try out for the Indianapolis Clowns in the American Negro League. This was serious baseball. Hank Aaron had played for the Clowns. When Mammy Johnson signed a contract with the Clowns, she became the only woman to ever pitch in professional baseball. She joined Tony Stone, who also played for the Clowns and had been the first woman to play for a professional team. Clowns teammate Gordon Hopkins once said, quote, It was no joke. It was no show. Somebody hit the ball down to Tony. Tony threw you out. Mammy, she was good. End quote. When Hank Bayless, the third baseman for the Kansas City Monarchs, stepped into the batter's box, 
and looked out at five foot three, hundred and fifteen pound Mammy Johnson, he snickered. Why, you're no bigger than a peanut, he called to her. She had heard worse. She struck him out and shut him up. But the name stuck. Peanut Johnson pitched for three years, from 1953 to 1955, retiring from professional baseball at the age of 21. Her record was 33-8, and and she batted 270. Pretty good for a kid from South Carolina who learned to pitch by throwing rocks at birds. Peanut Johnson got her nursing degree from North Carolina A&T and would have been there just a few years before the A&T 4 started their Woolworth sit-in we heard about in the last episode. She went on to work for 30 years at Sibley Hospital in Washington, D.C., the hospital my grandmother got her nursing degree from. In 2008, Major League Baseball held a draft where teams picked players from the Negro League era to be sure that they were recognized as the incredible professional players they were. I'm very proud to say that my hometown, Washington Nationals, drafted Mammy Johnson. We've also named the baseball field at Rosedale Recreation Center and the Northeast Quadrant of the city in her honor. In 2012, Mammy met Monet Davis of Philadelphia. At 13, Monet, 5'4 and 111 pounds, had become the first girl to earn a win and pitch a shutout in Little League World Series history. After the meeting, Mammy said of Monet, quote, She reminds me of me. I wasn't no baby doll, no girly girl. Baseball was all I knew, and I loved it, end quote. It was sadly just a few months ago, on December 17, 2017, that Mammy Peanut Johnson passed away at the age of 82. When Peanut was interviewed late in her life, she remembered vividly that day in Alexandria, when she was rejected from the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. At the time, it seemed like her dreams had collapsed around her, and she was crushed. As I mentioned earlier, though, in retrospect, it was one of the best things that ever happened to her. Had she been accepted by that league, she never would have had the opportunity to pitch for the Clowns and really prove what she was capable of. She remembered that day as a good day, despite how it seemed at the time. May that be a lesson to us all. When we get passed over for a job or a relationship ends or any number of other situations we face in life, we can often feel devastated. And that's okay. We're allowed to feel our feelings and mourn our losses, but we must pick up the pieces and move forward. Because we never know when opportunity is masked as tragedy and when something is actually a blessing in disguise. In those moments, think of Peanut Johnson, and what would have happened if she'd given up on baseball that day. She would have never had the opportunity to be the only woman who has ever pitched a game in professional baseball. And I'm sure she would be the first to scold me if I didn't correct that statement by saying the only woman so far. They don't joke make me feel the way you do And I damn near try them all We now get to still cross the noisy road. I hear nothing at all. That brings this episode to a close. Thank you for coming along for the ride. To find out more about me or my journey around the country, drop by my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. 
That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. To get the whole story, be sure you follow me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet, and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. You can find episodes of the podcast on my website, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and most podcasting apps. If you enjoyed it, please help me out by rating and reviewing it. And most importantly, tell your friends. Music this week comes from Saluda Shoals, recorded live at the Ondaw Barn Jam. Find their album, Fight Dirty, on iTunes, and learn more about them at their website, salutashoalsband.com. Background music for this episode comes from Kevin McLeod over at IncomTechMusic.com and sound effects from the folks over at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music from the legendary Memphis Slim. Be sure to tune in next time as I bring you stories from the upcountry as I finish off my time here in South Carolina. My name is Mike Harding, and thanks again for listening to American Anthology. Until next time, keep your eyes on the road your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.